As the last of the parents come in, it's great to be together this morning. We're uh, picking up where we left off last week. We're in our second week of a short series we're doing on uh, Ecclesiastes, exploring Ecclesiastes. It's called A Right Perspective. And uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, the first 15 verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'm going to read them as we unpack them together. But this is a, a really powerful uh, book. It, it, it's a, it speaks very much into the world that we live in. It speaks very much to the culture that we're facing at the moment. And so this is, I feel today God's going to speak to us. So I want us to pin back our ears and hear what God is saying to us. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to delve into the word of God. Father, we come before you, the God who sits enthroned above the heavens, the God who never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we come and worship you. We live in an ever-changing world, and we thank you that you're the God who's in control, in control of this world and our lives. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, speak into our hearts and lives and our situations and circumstances. And today, may we encounter Jesus, your Son. Amen. So, a number of years ago, uh, I was uh, in visiting someone in hospital. And uh, this was someone uh, in a previous church, uh, 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 he was going in for uh, an angiogram, a hospital angiogram. He'd had some heart issues. And uh, so I went in to visit him, and uh, I was with him, and the, the nurses were coming to take him down for uh, just to have dye uh, uh, injected into his blood so they could see what was happening in his heart at the time. And so we were together, we chatted, uh, I, and I prayed for him, and uh, went home, and uh, uh, several hours later, I got a phone call from someone uh, else, one of the other leaders in the church, uh, and they said this, Steve, what happened? And I'm like, sorry, I, what do you mean what happened? What happened when you prayed for Harold, what, what, what was going on? I, I said, nothing. I, he was just going down for an angiogram, straightforward. Uh, I just prayed for him. I prayed that God would be with him and we'd know his peace and his presence. And they said, don't, don't you know that he died during the angiogram? I'm absolutely stunned, shocked. Didn't see it coming. It was a moment I came face-to-face with the realities of life and death. Where was God in the moment? Was he just watching on? Didn't he hear my prayers? I'm sure many of us have experienced times when life just seems cruel and random. What about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria? Initially, uh, we knew that a, a few thousand were have known to have died. Now it's more than 50,000 people. Is there any reason to life's madness? Or is it all meaningless? Trying 
to make sense of life in this world is enough to drive us crazy. In the Bible, the word meaningless is used 38 times, and 35 of them are in this book of Ecclesiastes. The book starts with everything is meaningless, and it finishes with everything is meaningless. And as one writer puts it, in between those two bookends are seemingly 12 chapters of dead ends. The message of Ecclesiastes is that the pursuit of pleasure, ambition, work, wealth, power, fame, of themselves are all ultimately pointless. I love parts of Ecclesiastes. And yet other parts I just find bleak and disturbing as the writer probes and explores the questions of life. This book is the closest we get in the Bible to philosophy. Derek Kidner, the uh, author of the Bible Speaks Today series uh, on uh, the message of Ecclesiastes, says that the writer in Ecclesiastes is writing and thinking from a human perspective, from the observable world, and only knows God from a distance. This book is... In truth, it's a warning to all of us who think that through our powers of uh, intellect, observation, reasoning, our experience, we can understand the world, the universe, and everything. It forces us to conclude that to make sense of this world that we're living in today, we need to see things from God's perspective. That's where Tim left us last week. And today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, the first 15 verses of chapter 3, and we're going to pick up three themes that the writer is developing. And the first one is this, the the first, the writer is focusing on the frustration that we see in the seasons. We're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 3. This is what they say. There is a time for everything. And a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. We all experience the frustration of seasons. For many of us, winter is frustrating. We hate winter, the dark mornings, the dark evenings. We go to work in the dark. We come home in the dark. We don't see anyone outside people we see in the workplace. It's just frustrating. Sometimes we're frustrated in realizing uh, our frustration is, uh, is not knowing and realizing that the season has changed around us. That particular season of life suddenly has changed and we didn't see it happening or coming. Our problem is it's beyond our control. 
I was just thinking about for uh, on the 12th of August, for the grouse, everything changes. It isn't. It's called the glorious 12th. Well, for if you're a grouse, it isn't particularly glorious. You have this moment, the grouse is going along through life thinking, wow, I'm going to do just the same as I did yesterday. And the 12th happens and then everything changes. It's grouse hunting season and everything changes. And the grouse has no idea until it's too late. The verses that we've just read in Ecclesiastes 3 are a poem where the writer is setting one word against its opposite. It's called a merism, if you're interested. The writer is painting a picture using rhetoric, a figure, figure of speech. It's well known. If you've read uh, Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, that's how it starts. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The writer is referring to both extremes, life and death, and everything in between. The point is, one isn't better than the other. The writer isn't saying, life's what is important, death isn't important. The writer is, isn't doing that at all. The writer isn't telling us how we should respond to the season that we're in. The writer's point is, there is no point. Whatever the season, everything is frustratingly meaningless. As someone once said, these few verses, these eight verses include eight pluses and eight minuses and in between a big fat nothing. A time to live, a time to die. We all think that our lives count and they they mean something. And yet you go to graveyards, overgrown graveyards, untended graves, people who once mattered to someone, uh, they've gone and everybody's forgotten. Ultimately, no one remembers us. A time to plant, a time to uproot. In our, in our garden, Annie loves gardening. And so uh, she had planted this yucca plant in the garden, and it was doing brilliantly. It was, it was growing really tall, this tall yucca plant. And yet this winter has devastated it. And she went into the garden last week and found that it was all dead, and there's just literally this tall stump. All her efforts for nothing. A time to kill, a time to heal. We see what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. And it's absolutely senseless. A time for tearing down, a time for building. Was involved, been involved in many building projects over the years. In previous church, we built a four million pound. They built a four million pound building. And talking to the architect about it as we were just about to commission the build. And the architect said, I, I said, oh, this will be here for the next 150 years. He said, oh no, Steve, we only build, we only plan for 40 years. Four million pounds for 40 years. Really? A time for weeping, a time for mourning, a time for laughing, a time for dancing. Honestly, there should never be a time for dancing. <laughs> Honestly, really? Just shouldn't be. A time for embracing, a time for refraining. I mean, for those of you who've had teenage daughters and 
they bring home a boyfriend for the first time. And the boyfriend's got his arm over and he goes, no, 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 this is a time for refraining, not in my house you don't do this. <laughs> a time for searching, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away. Like in a storm, you, a boat, a ship is going across the ocean and uh, it's carrying goods, it's stored, it's carrying uh, stuff with it. Goods. And then suddenly the storm kicks off and the, the ship needs to lighten itself. So it jettisons, throws the goods away. There's a time to jettison. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Irrespective of the season, ultimately seasons can be frustrating. At best we try to navigate our way through them. But we don't have any control over what's coming and when it's going to happen we can be in a season that's been really difficult but it doesn't mean that a good season's coming actually might be the good season we live with these challenges last year I was looking forward to uh, my 60th birthday and celebrating with family and my kids was thinking about it during the year. I mean, I'm not big on ages, but you think it's 60, that's a, that's a big moment. It's now a distant memory. It's come and it's gone. Time and tide wait for no man. Where did the time go, we say? There aren't enough hours in the day falls from our lips. We need to make the most of our time, we think. Ecclesiastes is a reminder we don't write the script for our lives. One help of, enjoy, uh, of helping us handle the frustration we face is just enjoying the moments that are in front of us. I remember hearing someone many years ago give some sound advice. He said, I want to leave uh, my wife with uh, memories of things we did together, not regrets of things that we never did, we were always going to do in the future. Because I don't know how much longer I've got. I want to leave her with memories of things we did. Smart, smart advice. If we're going to not be frustrated by the seasons, we don't want to be presumptuous, presuming what's going to happen next. Seasons can be frustrating. Have you experienced that? Maybe you're in a season at the moment that's been incredibly frustrating. You don't understand why is this happening to me. It doesn't seem fair. The second thing the writer draws out, he wants us to fathom the season. It says this in verses 9 to 11. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The writer here seems to be suggesting that, that he's trying to understand, fathom what's going on, what God is doing. And the danger with frustration, just being frustrated with life, is it prevents us Fathoming, understanding what God's doing. It's important that we understand the season that we're in. Do you know the season that you're in at the moment? Because if you do, it will 
impact how you behave and how you treat other people. If you are a parent bringing up young children at the moment, you're in a season. And children need time, they need love, and they need effort because the season won't last very long. You need to invest in that season that you're in. If you're single at the moment, you need to enjoy the freedom that God has given it and use it to serve God. If you're at work at the moment, don't live for the weekend. Bring joy into the workplace in the season that you're in. Knowing the season helps us prepare for what lies ahead. It's key that we handle the transition of seasons as well as we can. One day, we will all die unless Jesus comes back. And so, it's good to talk and plan without being morbid about what happens. John Wesley said of his fellow Methodists back uh, in the day, he said, our people die well. They face these things well. They've prepared well. They don't know when it's going to happen, but they prepared well for it. Sometimes we don't know when the seasons are going to change, but we can do something about preparing well. Let's aim to transition seasons well. And those of you who were here last Sunday night or have watched the video that came out of the evening know that in this next... I'm looking to transition well in this next season and hand over leadership of the team to Tim in 15 months' time. It's important that we do it well for the sake of the church. Can't hold on to things forever. Feel that God's with us in this. And we had a a, a picture, a prophetic word uh, of a, a picture of geese flying. And this is what the word says. This person didn't know anything about this, but their word was this. There's a season for everything under heaven. And I saw geese flying north to breed. They are flying in a V formation. The lead bird moves back and allows another to take their place. This is a God thing. God will give grace for the journey. The fruitfulness lies in the north. The geese go to the Arctic to breed. The strategy of changing the lead bird allows continuous and sustainable flight in a V formation, resulting in great distances being traveled. God is speaking to us about a change of season. It's not that the old season was rubbish and the new season's going to be better. It's just a change of seasons. God remains the same, but he's always doing new things. We need to embrace what God's doing. Why do seasons change? Well, Ecclesiastes here in these verses says it's down to God. He he has laid a burden on men. You see, the result, the direct result of us trying to be independent of the God who created us and made us and formed us is, is that... We get frustrated. We try to live independently of of him, the one who loves us. And so God 
causes a burden to come upon us. An ache on us that can only be filled by God himself. And this burden is there upon all men and women. And the aim of it is that we would cry out to God. The God who causes this burden wants us to come to him and cry out, God, help me. God, you're the answer. I can only find help in you. Please help me in this season. And as we cry out to him, he's a God who causes the burden. He wants us to cry out to him, but he is a God who carries our burden, it says in Psalm 68, 19. He daily carries our burden. And if you're here this morning and you have never put your trust in Jesus and you're going through this life, you're thinking it's pointless. This world is meaningless. What is there? I want to tell you there is a God seated on the throne of heaven who never changes. And he has put a burden in your heart and he wants you to cry out to him. And if you cry out to him, he will come to you and he will carry your burden and you will know peace that passes understanding. That's the gospel. The writer says everything is beautiful in its time. Everything God created, including our work and the things that we do, are created to be good, not frustrating. And we live in a world that's been cursed by the fall by trying to live without reference to God. And we all now live east of Eden in a sin-sick world. But we're created with purpose. But that only becomes clear in a relationship with the living God. Tim quoted Augustine last week, and I'm going to quote him again because it, it sums it up. Augustine, many centuries ago, said this, You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find, can find their rest in you. Only God gives us rest. The world won't remember us. But he will. He never forgets his children. God kindly has set eternity in our hearts. And it's why we long to understand the bigger picture. We will be frustrated this side of heaven because we know there's more than this. The whole picture is only visible from God's perspective. And in the heat of the moment and when things are going wrong and when things are difficult and when the season's tough, we're too close to what's happening to see the beauty of the bigger picture. There's a story in the Old Testament about Joseph whose his brothers sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt and he ends up in prison. And in the end, he, he becomes... Number two to Pharaoh. And he rules the land because he's interpreted dreams and God's been with him. He would have never written the script. When he's in prison, he didn't know what God's bigger picture was. He's too close to it. But God was working out his great and wonderful plans to rescue men and women. If you've had children and you've been traveling anywhere or uh, your children come home and they ask, start asking you questions. And they say, why? Well, because it's, but why? But, but, but why? But yeah, why? And in the end, the, in the end, you just have to say, because I told you. 
We are like children before our Father in heaven and sometimes our wise. The response of God is, trust me. The last theme is this, fulfillment in every season. There may be frustration in the seasons. We want to fathom the seasons, and to some degree we can. But there is fulfillment in the seasons. And we're going to read verses 12 to 15. This is what they say. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be has been before and God will call the past to account. This book, the book of Ecclesiastes, is traditionally associated with Solomon, King Solomon. And the suggestion is that he wrote it in his old age after spending his life pursuing wealth, sex, and happiness. And at the end of it all, the conclusion was, it was he was just chasing the wind. Now, we're not sure if Solomon wrote this book. But if he isn't the author, the writer clearly intends us to draw a link with Solomon. Ultimately, the writer of Ecclesiastes is calling us and stirring us and provoking us to look for one who is far greater than Solomon. We would never have known who that is if Jesus hadn't himself said in Luke chapter 11, now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is our greater Solomon. You see, Solomon pursued meaning and understanding in by observing the world and understanding it. An observation and deduction are the basis of science to discover the reason why things are the way they are. That's what Solomon was trying to do. If it was Solomon who wrote this book, that's what the police, the writer's trying to say. Solomon was trying to find the reason for why things happen. And in Greek... The reason why is the word logos. It's, it's why areas of study in, the, in science end in ology, geology, biology, ecology. When John writes his gospel, in John chapter 1 verse 1, he uses the word logos. And it's translated in our Bibles, the word. When he uses the word logos, he's saying, the reason why. And he's talking about Jesus. It's a description of Jesus. It's a title of Jesus. Jesus is the reason why. Jesus is the reason everything exists. We heard that scripture read to us from Colossians chapter 1. He's the reason this world exists. He was there. He created the world. He sustains the world by his power. 
The answer to our frustrations is a relationship with the reason why. Jesus is the only one who can bring meaning into our meaningless lives. A a relationship with Jesus enables us to enjoy every moment that God gives us on this earth, whatever the season is like. When things go well, we can drink deeply of joy. Even though we know it won't last forever. And in seasons of frustration, when things are not going well, it drives us to our loving Heavenly Father who will never let us go, who has a plan for our lives that's far greater than these days that we live in and this world that we live in. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul is able to say this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, not some things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the silver lining running through the dark clouds of Ecclesiastes. What God does What God does will last forever. We're living in this world for a better day when God will put what's wrong right. There's a right time for everything under the sun. And the New Testament writers remind us that Jesus came at just the right time. The Greek word is kairos. Jesus came at just the right time, we're told. The appointed time in the purposes of God. When Jesus started his three-year ministry, in Mark 1.15, we're told that Jesus said the time is come, the kairos is come. The kingdom of God is near. At just the right time, Jesus came, lived on this earth, revealed his Father in heaven to us, and he died on a cross for our wrongdoing. That we might know meaning in meaningless lives. And he rose from the dead and has conquered death. That there might be a future for us that goes beyond the grave. Jesus is the answer to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He brings light into darkness and out of darkness. He brings life from death. From sickness, he brings health. He brings wholeness out of brokenness. He brings laughter out of distress. Only Jesus can do that. Only a relationship with the reason why can do that. Only he ensures that the lost are found. In life's meaningless, Jesus brings meaning and purpose. In Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35 we read a story of two of Jesus' disciples walking on the Emmaus Road. Jesus, they've been following Jesus possibly for three years. They've been all in. And then suddenly, shockingly, Jesus is crucified and dies on a cross. They are utterly bemused. They're broken. They're disappointed. All their hope seems to have been crushed. And they're going home in despair. They're walking together along the Emmaus Road. And suddenly, 
there's a Kairos moment. Jesus is walking alongside them. They don't even realize it, it's him. And they, Jesus asks them, says, what's going on? And so what, why are you so downcast? And they, they start to tell him about what's been happening, not realizing it's Jesus himself. And they get to uh, their place, their home. And Jesus makes as if to go further. And they say, no, no, come in. And as they... As he comes in, they break bread. And as they break bread, they see him. They recognize him. Suddenly in their meaninglessness, meaningless lives, lives that have fallen apart, an encounter with Jesus changes everything. Hope rises again in their hearts and they go back. They go back to where they came from. They return straight away. He's alive. Everything changes. Seasons come and go. But Jesus remains the same forever. And the New Testament is full of such encounters, such kairos moments. Paul on the Damascus Road. Peter is in prison, locked in prison, and he's set free in a moment because Jesus sends angels to set him free. Does everything seem pointless for you? Is what you're going through at the moment feel like meaningless? Are we experiencing what feels like an endless season of pain and heartache? Have we, do we feel like we've been praying forever and ever and it's as if God hasn't heard us and nothing's changed? Are we, are we waiting for him to come and bring hope in the circumstances we're facing and the difficulties we're going through? Don't give up. Hold on. Jesus always comes at just the right time. When will he come? I don't know. All I know is he will come at our Kairos moment, at just the right time. The psalmist in Psalm 31 says our times are in his hands. Your times are in his hands. And he will never let you go. He hears our prayers and answers them in his own good time. He's working out his purpose in and through us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's not finished with you yet. God's not finished with you yet. And he wants us to be those who worship him despite the circumstances. Whether they're good or bad, he wants us to worship him. I'm going to ask Liv to come and just share a prophetic word that she had. And then we're going to break bread together. Hi, uh, um a couple of weeks ago um, was the anniversary of my mom's death and I felt God give me a picture which I felt him put on my heart to share this morning and it was of a, a vast oak tree um, stood completely bare in winter and right at the top of the tree was a single bird and I felt God say the phrase 
This is why I've called you to stand above the changing circumstances. And as I kind of looked on at this picture in my mind, I saw the tree change from winter to spring to summer to autumn, back to winter. But the birds stayed at the top. And, yeah, just the encouragement, and that is where we are to stand above whatever circumstances we're going through. Do you hear that? We're to stand above the circumstances. We recognize, we acknowledge them. We don't run away from them. We don't pretend they're not real. But we don't allow ourselves to be frustrated by the, by the seasons, changing seasons, because we look to one who never changes. Whatever season you're in at the moment, know that God is with you. And actually there's fulfillment in the seasons as we worship him. And so we're going to break bread together. This is an appropriate response to our worship. And I'm going to read some verses. And then I'm going to ask you to come and take bread and wine. This is what it says. Jesus speaks to the two on the Emmaus Road. He says to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. That's so us, isn't it? We're so prone to be slow to believe and trust him. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Bible is all about Jesus. Ecclesiastes is pointing us to Christ. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. As they broke bread, they suddenly, in their there's a kairos moment. They see Jesus. As we break bread, Jesus is here by his spirit amongst us. And as we break bread, he is present. And I believe he's going to meet with us. So as we come and take bread and wine, go back to us. We're going to do this together. So go and take bread and wine and go back to your seats. And we will, I will lead us through breaking bread together. Let's do that. <laughs> 